International bread could literally be anything. anything. It could be anything. It could it be could a French be from baguette. Iceland. It could yeah. be yeah. It could be Ethiopian sponge bread. We don't know. Yeah. It could be ciabatta. It could be ciabatta. It could be literally anything. <laughs> it's so silly. It's so so silly. It's like backstage, but there's no stage. It's the standby for places green room. Welcome to In the Green Room. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of In the Green Room. I am your host, Margie Zarcone, and I'm joined today. I'm so excited to be joined today <laughs> by my friend and colleague, Junya Karam. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Junya, yes. you have written Woes of Just Another White Girl. Yes. Yeah. Is this Touchy the title. first thing you've written? No. Okay, um, because I was going to say, if this is the first thing you've written, that's unbelievable. Because <laughs> it's, <laughs> n- truly, because it's extremely impressive. Thank you. I would like to ask you about the title. Ah. <laughs> um, well, no, this isn't the first thing I've written, but this is the first thing that I'm sharing publicly. Uh And as for the title, according to the American census, I am considered white. According to my own personal identity, I consider myself Arab Um, in the region that, you know, we refer to as the Middle East, which is a very Eurocentric term to begin with. uh, They are all considered white in the United States. So we're talking about uh, an ethnic and racial group that is diverse in and of itself, right? Because there are Afro-Arabs, there are, you know, like a varied variety of of Arabic people in the Middle East. Um, But we would all be considered and categorized as white, which isn't my experience living as a person of color in the United States. Um, However, when people see me and talk to me initially, uh, a lot of the times they just consider that I'm white or that I have a certain level of privilege, which I do um, with the color of my skin that my father and my brother don't have. So I'm just uh, very tongue in cheek of my whiteness, I guess, in the title. So when you say by the census, you're considered white. Yes. That means there is no box. There's no box. For, so it goes white and then. Yeah. So it'll go like wow. uh, white, Asian, uh, Asian and Pacific Islander, um, African, African-American. So they'll have those different categories, but they won't have anything for North African and South uh Southwest Asian, sorry, Southwest Asian. There's a lot to unpack with that. Yes. There's a lot to unpack in in the title. There's a lot to unpack (laughs) in the title alone. Yeah. So there are several lines in the play, most of which come from Jack, Mm -hmm. that touch on not just the physical whiteness, but the social construct of whiteness. Mm -hmm. A lot of times artists have this struggle where 
when they create something, everyone wants to know who they're talking about, if the person is supposed to be them. And sometimes it is, which is great. But sometimes it is also an amalgamation of different experiences and your experiences and your friends' experiences and what you've read about and what you've heard. Would you say that the struggle the main character faces in the 12 pages, Mm -hmm. is this something you have encountered and spoken to other people about? Is it a combination? Uh, Yes, to both. Um, I experienced this conversation uh, quite frequently, actually which is important because at least the discourse is being had, right? We're, we're, conf- we're confronting different ideas that people aren't necessarily familiar with because they haven't had the opportunity to have those conversations with someone who is open enough to actually talk about it. Um, however, with this particular scene, and it is actually an excerpt from something that's a little larger. Uh, that was my next question. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but there is a very specific relationship here that allows for him to feel comfortable enough to have this conversation and her to feel a level of comfort to share certain things, but not everything, um, particularly because of his state. But this is a, a, when we're talking about how people move in society, particularly in the current political climate, uh, it's, it's very touchy. Um, especially considering race and representation and a lot of the violence that's happening against people who are othered. And I myself am a person that is, is trying to identify that I have been othered without trying to steal or take away or invalidate someone else's narrative um, in, in bridging that gap. So, Which is such a sticky situation yes. for someone to be in. Yes, so it's like, okay, we're, we're talking about whiteness and privilege here. Um, I identify that I'm privileged. I identify that my family is very privileged, uh, but that doesn't take away from certain situations that we've all had to encounter uh, living in the United States, even with our own statuses of privilege. Um, and, and, you know, I even say... I even give Jack the line, you know, it's a very stereotypical line that I hear all the time. And it's not just me as an Arab woman. It's um, my like black Latinx, like, you know, African-American friends who have also encountered the, the whole phrase of, well, I've experienced things too, right? Like, well, I, I've had hard, hardships. We're not saying that you haven't. We're saying that um, it isn't, it isn't written in the cards that you're already going to have these certain transactions. It's interesting when people go on the offense and are immediately try. I, you have a word for it. It would uh, a pissing. Oh, a pain pissing contest. A pain oh, yeah. pissing. Yeah. Right. And you, I mean, you see and hear it a lot with white people who have grown up in in poverty and have been extremely disadvantaged, getting angry at people of color for Mm -hmm. sharing their struggles. 
and immediately pitting them against each other as if they are equal. No one is saying that doesn't take your pain away. And it is such a defensive, toxic way to uh, talk about anything. I mean, it completely shuts out any empathy Mm -hmm. or any understanding. Right. And empathy is very important when having these conversations with people. Um, It's not something that a lot of people are well-practiced in anymore. I think we need to like stretch and strengthen that muscle a little bit because we're so locked into our own narratives and lives and how they fit into the world that sometimes it's difficult to just sit down and not compare, but to listen. Um, And I think that that's kind of something that I found myself having to do uh, during this pandemic is sitting down or, and even before that, but with the whole Black Lives Matter situation happening and, and, you know, George Floyd's trial and this sequence of, Mm -hmm. of murders, I'm going to say murders that are happening against, um, Black and African Americans that, that you need, if you're not experiencing that, you need to just sit down and listen to the people who are, because there's something systemically wrong here. And they've been telling us this for generations upon generations. And uh, even when I've been doing some of the, the interviews for In the Green Room, I found that, you know, a lot of these experiences I personally can empathize with and have experienced to a different degree. Um, and even then, it's like, you know what? Temper yourself, sit down and listen. And ask yourself, how can I help? How can I, as a person outside of this experience, A, empathize with it, and B, uh, help kind of be a solution-oriented person and unpack this systemic problems that we are having um, and not make it about me sometimes, you know? Uh, This is the first time in this play where I'm making it about me a little more. And even then, I don't take it to the extreme of uh, actually disclosing uh, certain experiences that myself and other Arab American women or Arab women in general have experienced. Uh, so, and, and men, honestly, it's it's a tough it's a tough balance to strike. Not to be too on the nose, but there are many shades of stories that yeah. haven't been told. <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, feminism really started picking up momentum with Betty Friedan with the feminine mystique, but it was Mm -hmm. white women's feminism. That's exactly right. Yeah. So she was the one who released it. Mm -hmm. And then feminism has grown from there. Yes. yeah, I mean, uh, it should be inclusive, right? So like there needs to be a, a barrier breaker. Uh, and that tends to be someone who is a little closer to or has a, a sense of privilege that they can manipulate and utilize. So in that case, it would be like, okay, well, she's a white woman. That doesn't necessarily take away her st- struggles as a woman who's, who's trying to uh, break out and, and fight for equality. Um, but because of her, the complexion of her skin and her status in this country 
due to the complexion of her skin, she is able to take that step forward. And with her being able to take that step forward, we can start tacking things on a bit more, right? And, and expanding on that issue. She is the person who would have the easiest time within our society taking that first step forward. And she yes. wrote her experience. She wrote what, what she knew. Yes. But there are many shades and degrees of the experience. Yep. Yep. Going back to what you said about empathy, mm-hmm. I often wonder when someone says that they have empathy, I have certainly seen and experienced empathy. I've mm-hmm. seen situations of empathy. I've experienced empathy. But I often wonder, you say it's a, a muscle we need to strengthen. Mm-hmm. I think the empathy is there, but it's empathy for situations that we know and understand. Mm-hmm. And we don't have the muscle exercise for situations that we don't know mm-hmm. and understand. Like people have a hard time stepping out. And then the first response is to be defensive because you feel attacked, where mm-hmm. that should be the point where we are empathetic with the person who's sharing their struggle with us. Yes. Well, empathy requires a sense of openness to listen. Um, And it also requires some creativity on your part, on anyone's part who's trying to exercise that muscle Um, because it is trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes. I I can only imagine being my father, right? And being pulled over and having to go through certain protocol that sometimes men of color have to go through uh, for survival to make sure that they aren't uh, pulled out of the car and you know manipulated in, in this power structure that has been enforced. But it, I would have to be creative because I'm not my father. I'm not a, a man um, who would be considered a threat. He's in his older years now. Um, but I remember my mom talking about her never really questioning her, her whiteness that she was like, oh, well, I always considered myself white. And in the same breath, in the same story, uh, she was talking about uh, witnessing my father getting manhandled because of how he presents as an Arab man and right in front of her like completely assaulted by these cops. And they're from the same place. Right. They're from the same place. So my mom kind of had this, this um, like backlash experience because she was in it. But to have her put herself into those shoes, there's a distance there, right? She said, well, I, I always considered myself white until recently when we're talking about reinforcing our otherness us having that conversation took her trying to like um, exercising that empathy muscle, which is very strong with her. She's a very empathetic person and kind of putting herself in my father's shoes and being like, Oh, wait a second. This isn't, this isn't an experience that um, that should be happening to a anyone and B I can only imagine. So sometimes we just got to sit down and listen. You know, sometimes I feel like our empathy stops at situations that we don't understand or haven't experienced or haven't heard the stories right of right and so it's like 
imagine having the fear of that circumstance or situation, that occurrence, right? And then having that inform how you move on a day-to-day basis, that intense experience Mm -hmm. distilled into practices that we have to, that's, that is something that is so beyond me um, that I try and listen when I can to people who have to do that uh, on a day-to-day basis, because I am very lucky being a white presenting-ish person. Going back to what you, you said before of speaking to speaking to friends who, who are black, who are Latinx. And, and Asian, and Asian. And Asian, and Asian. And Asian. That are happening. Absolutely. And, and hearing different experiences, and you said that you could empathize in certain situations, mm-hmm. but you didn't want to make it about you. Yeah. I, I would also say, though, that that is you trying to connect. Like, it's, co- it's coming from a good place. You mm-hmm. want to you want to identify with someone and make that connection. And I, and I feel sometimes white people, it's mit, it's miss. It's misguided a little it's bit. It's misguided a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Like that, not to say that white people don't, don't say, um, Oh, you know, and, and have a pain pissing contest yeah. with, with people whose situations that they could never, that they would never be in the skin to understand. Right. Fully. But I do do think that sometimes it is a misguided attempt at co- connection and empathizing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's validity in, in both sets of experiences, but there's also a sense of urgency that needs to be considered in certain transactions that you're having or conversations that you're having with people. So if we're talking, me as a cis woman, right? If I'm talking to a trans woman, and we're both talking about, uh, let's say, being followed at night. Both of us have had that experience, right? I can empathize, but I can't completely understand. So when she's telling her a- account of being followed one night, the stakes are high in a very different way because trans girls are being murdered at higher rates than cis women. Trans women and cis women have very, like, you can say that you have pretty similar trajectories in their experience, but they're not identical. So when we're talking about, like, I can commiserate with that kind of fear. I can, oh my gosh, that happens to me once as well. Um, it's about framing and what urgency the situation has. How recently did it occur? Uh, and and what's what's going on right now in the climate for for us to kind of reach out and and talk about it uh my me as a person my first impulse is to make sure that the person that i'm talking to uh feels safe in the space so that they can actually communicate exactly what their experiences are and in order to do that sometimes it's just about listening and absorbing Uh, and then at a certain point in time you can start really commiserating but that's just me as an individual I don't know how anyone would try and fix this kind of pattern that we've been identifying um, when it comes to talking about race ethnicity um, you know, the stratification of classes, uh, LGBTQ rights. I don't know what it would be like to, to kind of 
expand my own way of how I approach things because everyone approaches things differently so that as many people feel safe as possible. I don't know how to do that. But what I can do is I can write this, this play <laughs> about trying to navigate those conversations um, because I, I happen to have them pretty frequently. And uh, when I do have them, I try and check the person. Uh, whether I'm on the receiving end of, of receiving someone's story or if I'm telling someone my own story, you know, it was well said. Me. <laughs> that was incredibly well said. Thank you. And this is coming from such a, but just a disclaimer, such a privileged place, but sometimes I get nervous. Like I, I was a little nervous for this interview because I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to phrase something correctly or in in the most sensitive way mm -hmm. and I and I think you you said misguided I think there is a bit of that uh, from well-meaning mm -hmm. white people of yeah. they want to understand but then they're afraid to say the wrong thing so they don't say anything and then the not saying anything is worse it's so much worse and I, I am the type of person that has a pretty high threshold of receiving well-meaning yet misguided uh, questions, conversations, that sort of thing. Uh, I encourage them. I really, really do, because that's the only way to actually have a strong enough discourse uh, to incite and enact change. Like if, if we are going to be walking on eggshells around each other constantly because we're afraid of saying the right or wrong thing, then there's going to be no, sometimes you've got to break a couple of eggs. At least that's, that's of my, my thought process. And, and then you learn and then, and then you learn, but that's the thing. I don't think anyone wants to feel stupid or reprimanded either and it's not about being stupid or being reprimanded it's about like if you want to learn something new you have to expose yourself to those experiences you have to have those uncomfortable conversations you know it's in my mind if it's an off-color question you can still ask me and I'll tell you why it's off-color you know what I mean but I'm not going to make it so that uh I'm putting you down in any way. If, if anything, I'm very grateful that someone is even asking the question because then that opens the door for actual change because then that opens the door for um, actual commiseration and touching base with each other because you're learning something new. But learning new things is hard. It's just really hard. <laughs> I would say that's, it's definitely a symptom of white guilt too. Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, and privilege isn't a dirty word either. I, I really want to stress that point that privilege is not a dirty word. It's something that a person can have and uh, it gives them the ability to enact change on a broader scope. Um, I often hear that the definition is misunderstood, um, mm. that it doesn't mean wealth right. or doesn't only mean wealth yes. or education. Yes. It's not just that. Yes. There are different forms of privilege and to varying degrees. Absolutely. So people will get up in arms about being told that they're privileged when they don't feel privileged in, right. in terms of money and uh, 
education and background and the way they were raised. But there is a privilege that's there. It's yes. just a, it's a racial privilege. Yes. Well, Lena in the play identifies her own privilege. She does. We should we should get back to we <laughs> we, we jumped into the into the yeah. deep end really yeah. quick. I mean, it's easy when when we're talking about very dense material, though. Yeah, it's it's a twelve page excerpt, but it's a twelve page excerpt of of just touching the surface on, of very dense material and conversations that people are trying to have more and more of right now, right? So that's like so easy to to go off the deep end with that. But uh, with Th- Lena- thank thank you for saying yeah. that. Yeah, of course. I mean, we meet I, our two characters. Lena and Jack. Yes. Lena touches on her privilege and she identifies that she doesn't know certain things that Jack has gone through as a cis hetero white male in his mid 40s because she hasn't. But she's gone through what she's gone through. And uh, she knows that what she's gone through as a Palestinian American. Uh, an Arab American is different than what uh, a villager in the West Bank would be going through, or uh, an Arab who is living in Haifa, for instance, would be going through, uh, or someone in Hadse in Gaza. Um, right now, there are clashes in East Jerusalem, and they're being forcefully evicted. Palestinians who have been there for generations are being forcefully evicted. Uh, by Israeli settlers, which is against international law. Uh, And I can't say that I've experienced that and yet we come from the same place. So there's a level of privilege that I have. There's a level of privilege that Lena has and she identifies and she tries to unpack with with Jack, but Jack is, um, he takes it the way he needs to take it, I guess. (laughs) You shared that you're you're, you have a level of privilege here. Yes. Because you can, you pass as, you seem white. Yeah. Have you experienced any, not, not hostility, but um, te- tension with people with darker skin, you're both Arab. Mm. Has, has there been any, have there been any experiences where you have felt like, oh, my experiences aren't valid because I, I am not experiencing this the same way that this person is? Um, when it comes to Hueism, my validity is never really in question. Uh, I, I think I'm pretty strong in that on a personal level. Um, when it comes to within my own community. When it comes to transactions outside of my community and interactions outside of my community, um, yeah, I struggle with with my identity as being a person of color um, because there are certain people who have experienced higher rates of hostility um, either here and in the Middle East and and uh, across the globe. To be honest, Hueism exists. Uh, not it's not just a black and white issue it exists within the cultures of of these people so um that was my question yeah there's there's hueism in in the middle east 
there's and within Arab communities. Um, and and there's there's Hueism in other communities as well. There, you know, I, I remember going uh, and having lunch with uh, in my dad's childhood home in Nazareth. And uh, there was a comment about my whiteness, right? Like mm. straight up. And it and I'm I'm in a situation all with family, you know, but it's right. tossed out there like hey Yabeda, she's white. You know, and also that that's a reflection of me being an American, too, because I feel much more like I'm comfortable wearing this shirt, for instance. You know, it's like it's a cute shirt. My arms are showing. You can see my armpits, you know, on a special day, you might see a little side boob. That isn't necessarily the experience of someone who might be living in Nazareth. They're they're going to, you know, there are different social things. So for those of you listening at home and not seeing, <laughs> it's a very right. cute shirt. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a blue shirt. I'm show, like I'm showing <laughs> shoulders, mama, shoulders. Um, my how I treat my my body and how I present and the confidence that I have very much comes from me growing up in a very progressive household um in the united states and with that comes a level of privilege and i identify it i think that that can go back to also the whiteness not just as a physical color of your skin but also Mm -hmm. just the construct Mm -hmm. people look different (laughs) in any culture people look different uh there's no cookie cutter race (laughs) it just isn't um, but to unpack that would have to unpack centuries. <laughs> centuries. <laughs> uh, yeah. I just think it's interesting the difference between the social construct of white and the, the actual race factor. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's wild. It's, su- it's such a massive topic that it's kind of daunting, right? Like, how do you yeah. unpack this? How do you... How do you go about this in a uh, personally and socially productive way? Right. And sensitive. Yeah. It's very sensitive. Um, but hey, that's just coming from a white girl. So There's also a section where uh, Lena shares that she's Catholic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, agnostic, which, which is what most Catholics identify <laughs> as. Yeah. And, and Jack assumes that she's Muslim, but has a hesitation of saying Muslim. Yeah. As if it's a dirty word. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Is this an amalgamation of experiences? Oh this- yeah, oh yeah. It's a, it's a conversation that I've had several times, several times. And as a Christian Arab, uh, as a as as someone who identifies as like agnostic, but was raised Catholic, rather, mm-hmm. uh, there's a level of privilege there too. Like I've actually had conversations with people, and they would say, "Oh, you're, oh, you're Catholic. Oh, you're, you're one of the good ones." What does that mean? What does that mean? Exactly. I was what like, how old was I when that happened the first time? Meaning that you are one of the good Arabs? Yes. Wow. We're talking about the center of monotheistic religions, 
So in the Arab world, there are, there are Catholics. There are people who practice different religions. Dominantly, right. it's Muslim. That's not a dirty word. It's not. Uh, however, religion has been used as a divisive tool in Arab communities, particularly in the West Bank and Gaza and in uh, present-day Israel, uh, as a way to break up the identity of these people and how they relate to each other because it's so much easier to occupy and manipulate a, a group of people when they're not on the same page with each other. Uh, so religion is very much a tool that uh, oppressive forces can also use to categorize and other people who aren't necessarily very different, you know, which, which is really unfortunate. But like a lot of people don't know that the, the church in Jerusalem, one of the most famous uh, churches, if not the fam most famous church in the world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where the resurrection happened and everything. The keys to that church are held by a Muslim family and have been for hundreds of years because the, the different denominations of Christianity and Catholicism can't agree on shit. So here we are just going to give this Muslim family who doesn't, who respects, right? The religion, right. of course, the, the keys to this church. Wow. Yeah. Do you think the, the comment that was made to you uh, one of the I'm sure many comments yeah. was made to you as a as a child and Jack in the play mm -hmm. being nervous about saying Muslim do you think it's a little bit of a hangover from hearing on the 9-11 and hear and hearing oh yeah and hearing Islam demonized and it I think there was a definite shift yeah yeah and you know what's funny um the fact that I'm saying Palestine right now is controversial. The fact that I identify as a Palestinian American is very controversial. Like I will not be surprised if we get a lot of backlash for just how I'm identifying myself and using the term, okay? Mm -hmm. um, that in and of itself is politicized. The 9-11, what happened was an atrocity. It was a tragedy for this country, but it was also a tragedy for a lot of um, West Asian and North African people, because mm -hmm. now we are all grouped up mm -hmm. into um, this, this category of extremism and this, this depiction of Islam, which is not what I've experienced on a personal level of what Islam is and what, can, what it can be. Uh, that is, that is the frame of reference for people. And because that is the frame of reference for people, it doesn't matter how you actually practice your faith or if you even have a faith. If you identify with a certain ethnicity or race that is associated with that faith, you are, you're just linked up with it. And the people that hijacked that plane are considered white. <laughs> Whoa. It's just like- Crazy down. Crazy down. <laughs> And it's amazing because there's extremism in every religion. Every religion. The KKK consider themselves Christian. Is that a representation of Christianity? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Like that's that's what we're we're dealing with here. But because people aren't familiar with that culture, it's a foreign thing. Um, or rather, the diversity of the different cultures that are under this this huge dome. They're just going to take what they're fed, and I can't blame people for that. I can just have conversations with people about it. 
there are so many different hues in all of this, so many different hues, that to try and uh, veil it under one category is easy for mass media consumption. And that's what people do. A and box on the SAT. It's a box on the SAT. It's a box on the census. It's in the box that we watch our news from, from day to day. It's easy for people to consume because it's a difficult concept to wrap our heads around. On a societal level, we have to hold each other accountable um, without policing each other in a destructive way. And that's a fine balance to strike too, which I think that this play kind of does. When I got to the end, I kept scrolling and I was like, no, 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 where's the rest of it? <laughs> no. It's an excerpt, it's an excerpt. Yeah. I, I'm also interested in the character of Jack because he couldn't be a more polarizing choice. He is a white, middle-aged, privileged, rich, divorced? Divorced. Divorced man. Yes. Like, the ultimate <laughs> yes and somehow these two polarized characters have a friendship or had a friendship and connect in a, in a very intellectual way which just goes to show as a demonstration of of you can come from a completely different place and still exercise empathy even if it is a little misguided at least it's being exercised in a way where like we can expand on that. There's potential here. So I recently watched Lincoln Divided We Stand mm -hmm. and a bunch of Lincoln experts, including Conan O'Brien, for some reason, they unpack the myth of Lincoln and how in textbooks and in American society, we have put him on a, literally on a pedestal as a Christ-like champion over racism mm -hmm. and, and abolition. But the more interesting story is that he started out really not caring at all and wanting them sent back to Africa. And it's, a, it's about his journey to understanding and, event, and learning and growing and listening. He's a much more complicated, complex human and a story of, of example of how we can grow if we listen and put in the work. Yes. Why would this not, first of all, a far more interesting story that I would have liked to have read mm -hmm. in my AP US history textbook versus the most simplified distilled version that he was just this perfect person and that it could never happen again. When the real inspiring story is how he learned and grow, grew. Mm -hmm. why, why do we do that? Why do we? I mean, your guess is as good as mine, <laughs> but what I will say is that like stock characters, it goes back to consumption. They're easier to consume. If we present these complex dynamic people, which people are, by the way, even Beyonce, as, as perfect as I may want to believe she is, I am sure she has flaws and it is, you know, has stances on things that I may disagree with. Beyonce, please don't hate me. I love you. Um, Beyonce, since we know you're watching. <laughs> since we know you're watching, but, or listening. Um, <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is, is that 
it's easier to consume something that's distilled down. And sometimes people just need a hero to get them through. And let's be real here. The context of these history books are coming from the perspective of the victor. So of course they're going to want to have their champion come off as a hero. And uh, it's also probably a testament to what we thought society could handle yeah, listening that to. Too. That too, but you're right. Uh, the dynamism and the flaws of people and how they grow and overcome and learn are so much more interesting than to just have these picture perfect people um, on paper and on, on screen. It's, it's like the, the meat is in the nitty gritty stuff. And yes, we should be holding people accountable for things that, that when, they, when they're being unkind or when they're inciting hatred in, in others. Yeah, hold them accountable to that. But do you think that all of our role models that we look up to are picture perfect? Somebody is going to have an off-colored comment or something, if not in their history, in their present. And that doesn't mean that that is a testament to, to who they are and as a person. It's how they recover from those things that really matters, which is why I, I have such a such a icky feeling when it comes to cancel culture and how I kind of feel that that's just a term and like a term that people use to, to invalidate actually having a conversation with someone of an imposing view, like sit down, let's see where we connect and let's see where we differ. And instead of trying to indoctrinate you into my school of thought, how, how did you come to this conclusion so that I can have a better understanding of your worldview? And maybe, just maybe through this conversation, we can actually make an impact with each other. Now that is all very hippy dippy and whatever. Uh, and it's also very difficult. It's so hard to do, but so is being empathetic. Again, it's another muscle that we have to stretch. It was well said and I'd like it uh, stitched on a pillow. <laughs> a very large right. pillow. Yes. <laughs> get, get, I'll get to work. <laughs> uh, Junior, before we wrap up, sure. we got into some really big topics. We did. <laughs> all of which are the one of the many undercurrents of oh, yeah. this teeny tiny 12, 12 page yeah. dynamite there script. Sex politics in there as well, you know, like we've got every yeah. Yeah. A, a buffet. <laughs> it's a buffet of a, of a script, yes. I'd really like to hear how this is meant to be performed on stage. Yes. It is such an intimate setting. Yes. It's an intimate cast. Two people, apartment, mm -hmm. drinking. How do you create that intimacy when it's, what were some of the things, what was the process that you went through of creating that intimacy when it's just you and your headphones? I mean, it's difficult. But it, it honestly just comes down to listening. When we strip ourselves away from uh, the physicality and the physical energy that two people can feel uh, in, in a space, which is one of the reasons why theater is so, so amazing to me is because it's in, in, enigmatic in that way. Um, and it's a living thing to feel someone else's energy and to, to feed off of that. It forces you to sit down and actually listen to what the other person is saying. And that's a note 
that happens from time to time, more often than not, in theater and in film, is sit down and listen to each other. You're not hearing each other. And that's, that's where the emphasis is for this, is to actually sit down and listen, because then it becomes a conversation uh, that is very intimate, regardless as to whether or not you're in person. Here, this, this in interview, for instance, is a very intimate setting. It's just me and you. It's over headphones. But there's a lot of vulnerability here. There's a lot of unpacking here that's happening. And it solely relies on just listening to each other. Something that we can do in person or over the phone or over Zoom. It's a way to enact change and it's a way to build intimacy. What was it like hearing, hearing your work read aloud? It was a trip. I bet. It is a trip. It's a total trip. I mean, this is the first time I'm venturing out and in, in sharing my written work, which uh, is probably the scariest thing that I've really had to do as an artist. Uh, that being said, I'm so humbled and grateful uh, to, to have my work being read by by others and, and performed by others and having them connect to the material. It, it means a lot to me. And I, I'm just really grateful and humble for the opportunity to even be able to do that. And we feel very lucky that the world premiere is <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Are there varying degrees of, oh, I never heard it that way before. And then also like, do, do you ever get defensive? Like, oh, that's not the way that's supposed to be. Oh, it's my... Like, how, how do you sit, because it's your heart yes. in but writing is such an extension of ourselves. It's hard to hear something read if you don't totally agree with the way it's being said or you imagined it differently. Did you have any of that or? I welcome it. I welcome someone else putting their own experience into this structure that I've created because it colors these characters in a way that makes them more lasting, uh, more endurable, and more relatable to a wider group of people. There is no, at least for me, there is no one way to read a specific line. What, it, what it's more about is, are you pursuing what you want? Because some of the, some of the language lends itself to many different tactics being taken. Um, where actors have a little more freedom to be able to explore. And that's the kind of writing that I personally would like to do. When someone colors it in, in a way that I didn't see it before, um, that makes me really proud and happy that I was able to create it or you know, construct a canvas in which people are coloring with their own tools. And it's really fun and dynamic. Uh, and, and like I said, it's a humbling experience. Dunya, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me and to share your work thank you. on the podcast. The pleasure so, is mine. Thank you. Everyone listening, if you haven't already, please, please, I implore you to listen to and experience Woes of Just Another White Girl by Dunya Padam. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>